Hello, everyone, uh, ladies and gentlemen, distinguished guests, uh, fellow colleagues, welcome to uh, today's OC24 session, where we will delve into the heart of a matter that not only concerns um, Southeast Asia, but also has far reaching implications globally. Today, we have assembled um, for you a distinguished panel of experts who bring a wealth of knowledge and experience to discuss the latest developments, challenges, and the future outlooks of Southeast Asia's drug trade. In addition, they will shed light onto the ongoing efforts by the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, UNODC, into uh, enhancing cross-border law enforcement um, and judicial collaboration in the region. Yeah. Now, before um, we move forward and introduce our esteemed panelists, I'll set the stage for today's discussion. Um, the Southeast Asian region has witnessed a decade of unprecedented growth in the production and trafficking of synthetic drugs, most notably methamphetamines. The illicit drug trade has become increasingly complex, uh, posing significant challenge, challenges to the governments and law enforcement agencies um, and uh, whoever is involved um, in the region. While uh, we saw a brief dip in drug seizures, uh, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, these um, the, the, the seizures returned to pre-pandemic levels in 2022 with nearly 151 tons of illicit sub substances seized. So with this dynamic landscape, detecting and investigating um, illicit trafficking has become an intricate task. It demands that law enforcement officers and criminal justice practitioners together hold um, advanced expertise in identifying and analyzing substances and also have the ability to collaborate seamlessly with uh, their counterparts across the border. It's against this backdrop that we've gather, gathered our panel of experts to share their insights and, and experiences. Our first panelist brings to the table a decade of expertise in monitoring the developments of the illicit manufacture and trafficking of drugs in East and Southeast Asia. His insights into the changing dynamics of the drug trade in the region will be invaluable for our discussion. Mr. Inchik Sim, thank you very much for joining us. Our second uh, panelist today holds two decades of track record of working with governments and regional bodies in the Americas, Europe, and Southeast Asia. He has been instrumental in the development of policies and action plans aimed at advancing border governments, governance uh, agendas, and public information campaigns to address cross-border crime. He holds expen uh, his ext extensive expert experience positions him perfectly to shed light on the policy uh, dimensions of this complex issue. Lady, uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is Felipe de la Torre. And last but not least, um, our third panelist has a diverse background, uh, worked as a prosecutor and a senior attorney at the Ministry of Justice in Japan before joining UNODC in criminal justice with hands-on experience in conducting investigations, handling trials, mutual legal assistance and extradition he holds a unique perspective to offer on the operational aspects of countering illicit trafficking. Mr. Naoki Sugano, thank you so much for joining us. As for myself, um, I have the privilege of working for uh, UNODC's regional office in Southeast Asia and the Pacific based in Lao PDR, and I'll be your moderator for today's session. 
I'll seize this opportunity to thank the organizing committee for bringing the session together. Together, we uh, will explore the multifaceted challenges posed by Southeast Asia drug trade and the crucial role that UNODC plays in fostering collaboration, information sharing, and enhancing the capacity of law enforcement and criminal justice practitioners in, practitioners in the region. So without further ado, um, let's dive into today's discussion and gain a deeper understanding of the landscape of Southeast Asia's drug trade and the ongoing efforts to address it. I'll start off uh, with uh, Mr. Inchik Sim. Um, I have three questions for you. Um, the first one is, what do you think are the most recent um, and significant trends in drug trafficking in Southeast Asia and how have they evolved over the past decade? Um, then could you provide a few insights perhaps into the factors that have contributed to the growth uh, of, um, oh, well, in the production and in the trafficking of uh, synthetic drugs, particularly of methamphetamine? And last, could you perhaps expand on what have been the major challenges law enforcement agencies face encountering uh, illicit trafficking in the region and how have they adapted to these challenges? Inchik, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, thanks, Magali. Uh, this is my great pleasure to join this, uh, this session today uh, to share uh, my understanding of the drug business in Southeast Asia uh, with our participants. And uh, for the questions that you posed to me, I think uh, I could start uh, with the presentation uh, as it will cover uh, a lot of those questions. But at the same time, uh, if any of the uh, participants uh, have questions, then please uh, leave it at the chat on the chat uh, box. So I prepared a short presentation. I think it's to set the stage for today's discussion. Um, and I will start with a, a situation assessment. Uh, this is a graph for the uh, seizures of methamphetamine in East and Southeast Asia over the last decade. As you can see, the seizures of meth have increased up until 2021. There was slight decreases in 2022, nonetheless, uh, it really stays at high level. Uh, Magali mentioned at the beginning that it was 151 tons, uh, more specifically, uh, 151.7 tons. Uh, you can see there's one distinct pattern that the, the seizures of methamphetamine in Southeast Asia uh, is much, much larger than that of East Asia. Uh, as you can see in 2022, like 91.4% uh, of the best seizure totals in East and Southeast Asia were made in Southeast Asia. Uh, but if you look at the number of population, the East Asian countries are much, much uh, larger, uh, more people. Uh, compared to Southeast Asia. So it tells us that the drug challenges uh, faced by the Southeast Asian country is very significant. Yeah, I, I just explained this graph basically, uh, and then I will move on to the next one, uh, which is the, the trafficking flows of methamphetamine in the region. Uh, you can see some of the dots inside the map, those kind of depict the scale of the mass production uh, in the region. Obviously the biggest uh, mass producer I mean, producing area in the region is Shan State, Myanmar. Uh, but at the same time, we have some uh, math production uh, still uh, have some areas in the region, but uh, nowhere, uh, no way there. Uh, the scale is close to the Shan State, Myanmar. And the math produced in uh, Shan State, Myanmar traffic largely in the Mekong states like Thailand, and Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam, China but also goes all the way to Australia, New Zealand, and uh, Japan and South Korea as well. And one of the recent trends is increasingly uh, this traffic has been targeting uh, South Asian countries. 
such as India and Bangladesh, especially India. When you look at the northeastern part of India, there is also some of the border uh, management challenges between Myanmar and northeastern uh, part of India. And we see literally every day uh, methamphetamines being traffic through that border to South Asia. So what we what I want to highlight here is that the expansion of this mass trafficking uh, emanating from uh, Myanmar to different parts of the world. And one of the biggest concerns for us is the continuously decreasing price of methamphetamine. While seizures have increased in recent years, the prices of drugs have decreased. It's a really big concern. Uh, in, for instance, in Thailand, uh, obviously, was heavily impacted by the, the expansion of the mass production and trafficking from Myanmar. You can see that the price over the last three years really significantly decreased. Uh, in 2022, uh, the one kilogram of crystal meth at a wholesale level is not even 5,000 US dollar, uh, which is a really, really low. Um, and when it comes to retail price in Thailand, uh, it's about uh, 25 to 40 dollar uh, per gram. Uh, but about a decade ago, the price is about $100. So you can see that although it's actually even more than $100. Uh, it's general, I would say, the, the price of crystal mass in the region at the moment is about just one third of the price reported a decade ago. Uh, but, at the, but during the time, at the same time, we see the people been able to uh, make more money. Their economic uh, power has uh, grown up. But why the drug prices go down uh, have gone down, uh, which means that the accessibility and affordability of drug uh, for, by people in Southeast Asia uh, have increased significantly. Uh, one other trend that we see is the uh, this the various uh, drug branding. I would say uh, since the coup in Myanmar, uh, we closely monitor these drug packagings and incorporation with a authorities in the region. Uh, this is the data from Thailand. Uh, first two, 999 and Y1, those two brandings are associated with a specific groups inside Myanmar. But we see there are different brandings, uh, really a uh, number of different brandings uh, have been uh, identified in the region since the uh, coup in Myanmar in 2021. Uh, you can see in 2022, of all the mesopotamic tablet uh, packages, uh, the Mesami tablet uh, found in the regions that you can see 26.3% were other belong to other brands. Um, it was not the case back in the days. Uh, if you look at it in 2022, almost all seizures were either 999 or Y1 branding. Uh, it tells us that since the, uh, the political instability in Myanmar, uh, more actors involved in this drug business, uh, tableting and uh, involving tableting of this Yaba Mesami tablets, and involving also trafficking of this drug. Uh, we also have another synthetic drug that poses a challenge in the region is ketamine. Uh, if you look at this graph, the seizures of ketamine East and Southeast Asia in 2022 was record, uh, and 27.4 tons of ketamines were seized. Uh, also very similar patterns uh, in the ketamine uh, market of CHIRP compared to uh, methamphetamine markets. As you can see, the seizures of uh, ketamine in Southeast Asia is much, much larger than that of East Asia. Uh, so again, this is because of the where the drug is produced these days. The ketamine in the past was largely produced in China, but now it is in Southeast Asia, in particular Myanmar and Cambodia. Uh, uh, in 2022, it uh, was a kind of record year uh, for Cambodia because I mentioned 27.4 uh, tons of ketamine was seized in 2022. About half of them were seized by Cambodia alone. Uh, this is mainly because Cambodian authorities have seized several industrial scale 
caravan manufacturing facilities. Uh, this is one photo that we took when we went there to assess this level of uh, the scale of this caravan production facility. Um, I have seen a few laboratories uh, uh, during my career, and this was the, uh, I would say, the largest uh, production facility that I've ever seen uh, during my career. On You can see on, on your left, uh, this is a caravan production facility. It was found in uh, the province uh, near uh, Vietnam border, uh, between Cambodia and Vietnam border. It's about the 10 kilometer inside the Cambodia side. Uh, the reactor size of this is about probably 5,000 liters. It's really huge, and there were 20 of them. Uh, 12 of them. On the right, the smaller scale, but more reactors um, uh, that was also found in Cambodia. Many, many, many different chemicals, about uh, 600 tons of different chemicals were also seized together with this facility. Um, and we have to also think about the heroin, uh, which is not a synthetic drug. It's been here for decades. As you know, that that's why this region has this golden triangle, uh, you know, the, the reputation of the golden triangle has become very famous. Um, in 2022, again, since this coup in Myanmar, it has also brought very interesting development in the herring market. The cultivation opium, opium cultivation has increased significantly in Myanmar in 2022. As you can see, the cultivation level decreased starting from 20, 2014 up until 2020. 2021, there was a slight increase, but 2022, there was basically a 33% increase. And based on our communication with our colleagues working in Shine State, Myanmar, they informed us that the farmers return to Shan State to involve in the opium cultivation because of economic uh, reason. Uh, they have they lost their jobs uh, because of this uh, political instability. They have not uh, not a lot of opportunities to make money. They came back to Shan State and involved in open public cultivation. Uh, I mentioned earlier on the chemical issue a little bit. Um, the, one of the main problems uh, in the region is the basically uh, no seizure of key precursor chemical. Uh, when we received this uh, chemical uh, mass amphetamine forensic profiles uh, from countries in the region that they all tell us the majority of their samples analyzed uh, made out of this epidemic pseudoptimus, but we don't seize them at all. Really, in 2022, very like, minuscule amount of the epidemic seized and another uh, major precursor for methamphetamine is P2P also not really found in the regions uh, but we do have some understanding that the uh, the traffickers will also increasingly use this so-called non-controlled chemicals uh, that can be used in the process of uh, manufacturing uh, key methamphetamine precursor chemical also the finished products. So I gave you some overview of this drug uh, situation uh, in Southeast Asia. And I'd like to discuss a few points, uh, as Megali mentioned, on the driver for this illicit business. Uh, we have to discuss first is this governance challenge. Uh, in Shine State, Myanmar, it's an area with, uh, it's a home to many different armed groups. Uh, some of them are aligned to the uh, Myanmar junta, some of them are not. Uh, there have been uh, ongoing, basically, conflict in that part of the world. And some of the armed groups are very uh, powerful, I would say, the military-wise. Uh, one group, uh, you know, USA, is estimated to have at least 30,000 uh, uh, militants, and the other smaller groups also have sizable uh, militants. And that they are operating uh, at the border uh, between uh, Myanmar and China, also Myanmar and Thailand, Myanmar and Laos. So they exert their... Uh, 
control over those uh, key border areas in in Shan State with the other neighboring countries. And one of their main uh, sources of income is no doubt that is drug uh, production and trafficking. And I mentioned uh, a few times that the political instability have driven uh, this uh, expansion of illicit business, in particular drug trafficking, production and trafficking. And one was that I explained uh, based on these those different uh, drug brandings uh, have have been identified since the coup uh, increasingly. And we have seen uh, several times whenever there is uh, political instability, it provides opportunity for organized crime groups to operate in those areas. Because uh, in nowadays, and for instance, in Shan State, while uh, there are some uh, conflicts inside Shan State, uh, but uh, it's not as big as the other parts of Myanmar. Uh, uh, as a result, there is a basically law enforcement vacuum uh, in Shan State, and also the provider opportunities uh, conducive environment for organized crime groups to migrating into Shine State in cooperation and then cooperate with those non-state armed groups Myanmar to produce uh, drugs and involved in scamming operation these days. Uh, that's the last point that I want to get into today is a uh, scamming operations and casinos and special economic zones. And you know, I mentioned over the years the drug business have uh, evolved and expanded and there's so much money has been generated out of this and there is a clear re there is a reason why uh, there is a need basically for these people to allow the money and we see that that as a casino as a perfect partner for that uh, matter and we also see the uh, rising number of these online casinos as well especially economic Jones and we have done some study and when you look at it the profiles of people behind all building these casinos sometimes have a close associations with the drug traffickers or known criminals. And also that's the case uh, for special production. One good example is uh, Golden Triangle Special Production, which is located in Bokeo, Laos, uh, has been sanctioned by US Treasury and is just located right across the Shan State and has been known as a, uh, one of the key, uh, I would say, the conduit uh, for this expansion of the drug businesses in Southeast Asia. So all in all, I'd like to also give you some uh, our understanding where this drug business or illicit economies expand or will have it uh, in uh, in Southeast Asia. First one is I will I will really want to highlight that we have seen this a lot. The organized crime groups always try to concentrate into area where there is governance challenge. And this is a particularly matters to us in the Mekong because there are border management challenges. Uh, because of those armed groups operating those areas uh, in Myanmar. And second one is a jurisdiction chopping. Uh, it might be a little bit strong word, but we have seen this a lot. When one country respond heavily on organized crime, they migrate into different area and they starting to exploding that area. Uh, we have seen this in the drug business, scamming business as well. Uh, investment infrastructure uh, is quite concerning that the known criminals have been uh, investing into uh, infrastructure that will definitely facilitate their trade of illicit commodities. And the last one is accelerating adoption of technology. Uh, we have seen this uh, in a scaling business, uh, that the AI is also now used by criminals uh, for the scamming purposes. And I think this there is no way turning back from this uh, development. And more and more criminals will use this technology and while law enforcement authorities will face challenges to how to respond to those evolved uh, crime landscape in the regions. I will leave it at that. Uh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Enchik. Um, and thank you. This is very interesting. I may have uh, one last question for you. Um, 
drawing on a specific uh, case study of uh, there were 151 tons of methamphetamine seized in 2022. I was wondering if you could elaborate uh, perhaps on the implications of this and what this indicates as to uh, the drug trade's current state in Southeast Asia and the Pacific? Sure, sure, sure. Uh, thank you, Magali. I think the, you know, I explained a lot based on uh, the supply side of uh, situation here. It's mainly because of lack of data on drug demand in the region. But 151 tons, if you think about it, it's a lot. It's, we are talking about just seizure. Those undetected amount of methamphetamine, how much that would, I mean, nobody really knows, uh, but let's just make it easy uh, for our just estimate. Let's say law enforcement sees only 10% of the all drug traffic uh, in Southeast Asia and East Asia. The 151 tons only represent 10% of the total mass circulating in the region. That's a lot. That is really, really a lot. Then we're talking about like 1,500 tons or something like that. And there are several studies shows that uh, the, the normal doses of methamphetamine, especially in crystal methamphetamine, is about 30 milligrams. Uh, of course, depending on the situations and the amount of uh, the years of use or some different modality of both of uh, the, the use as well, but let's just say 30 milligrams. That's how many doses that we are talking about here. Uh, that the drug demand in the region has been really seriously underestimated. Uh, and uh, there are you know, few countries been conducted the National Household Survey, but uh, it is quite difficult to just believe that everything in that report is 100% correct. Uh, in a situation where the several countries, uh, I mean, the countries uh, have this punitive approach uh, for the drug use in many cases. And it's very difficult for us to expect these people to serve it, even if they use drugs, they will say, yes, I use drugs. Uh, it is very unlikely. So based on all those uh, indications here, I think the drug demand in the region has been uh, really, really seriously underestimated. I think that's the one thing that I want to uh, share with uh, people uh, joining the event. Thank okay, thank you. And so to better understand um, how to better estimate these drug trades. I think it's really important to bring forth the institutional framework um, surrounding illicit trafficking. And so with, with this, I'll turn it to uh, Felipe. And if you could maybe expand a little bit, I mean, we all know that the ASEAN Border Management uh, Cooperation Roadmap plays a crucial role in addressing illicit trafficking. And so I was wondering how was this framework uh, created to address the growing connectivity infrastructure and illicit trafficking challenges uh, posed in the region, in Southeast Asia and the Pacific. Thank you, Magali and dear audience. For me, great pleasure to address uh, to you today. I am Felipe, as Magali introduced me uh, already. I am from Ecuador and I have been working many years in the areas of border governance and border management uh, before in the Americas. And now I have a pleasure to serve uh, for the United States Office on Drugs and Crime in, in Southeast Asia from Bangkok. Um, I believe that what Inshik said is a really a very interesting um, setting of the ground because basically uh, he was able to explain, you know, the actual magnitude of the problem. And while drug trafficking still is a huge concern in the region, I believe that through the implementation of the border management actions uh, that uh, we do in, the, in Southeast Asia, we have come to understand that not only drug trafficking is a serious issue, but that drug trafficking is connected to other serious crimes. Usually drug trafficking rings are 
involving uh, young girls, uh, young boys. Um, there we have the issue of exploitation of children. We have the issue of uh, abuse of adolescents uh, for the actual harvesting of uh, drugs. Um, the youth is very much involved in the actual production distribution of uh the drug, the drug product. And uh, of course, money laundering is one of the big uh, bridges that allows all this machinery of money to end up in the accounts of those new millionaires who are the owners of the casinos, as Inchik explained. So we are not talking here about drugs. We are talking here about a series of uh, criminal offenses that affect the human being, that affect the economy, and that challenges challenge seriously the infrastructure of Southeast Asia. And when Magali <clears throat> asks me about the ASEAN Border Management Cooperation Roadmap, it is relevant to mention that this framework of action basically originated in the great will or desire of the ASEAN community to protect its infrastructure. Um, one of the things that um, really strikes and is, is globally recognized about Southeast Asia is the fact that uh, these countries have been able to really improve, boost, and develop an amazing and, uh, um, yes, surprising infrastructure in so few years. Um, and this is why, while, of course, there are countries that have uh, much more development than others in the same region, it is undeniable that um, Southeast Asia has made huge progress in this respect. So with this in mind, um, Southeast Asian um, leaders met a couple of years ago and decided that this infrastructure has to be protected and this infrastructure has been uh, seriously targeted and could be used by drug cartels and criminal uh, rings in order to expand, facilitate, and um, you know, move illicit goods around Southeast Asia or throughout Southeast Asia. So in this respect, this framework called the ASEAN Border Management Cooperation Roadmap is a response to this uh, worry, to this preoccupation of Southeast uh, Asian countries to protect their infrastructure. And how did they do it? Basically, it is a framework of action, an umbrella, a high-level policy that contains a series of actions in order to take border management to a next level of efficiency, of efficacy, of modernity. Um, so when we are talking, Magali, about border management cooperation roadmap, of course, we are dealing with an instrument that aims to protect ASEAN's infrastructure. It aims to protect ASEAN's um, well-being in the sense that better managed borders are there to uh, impede illicit goods from moving around, which is a very ambitious uh, objective, of course. But um, with this framework, uh, we are um, addressing not only the illicit trafficking, but also the, um, the speed with which people and goods move around the region. So it is a twofold uh, instrument. This is why it is very interesting. Uh, because as I say, it is an instrument that allows illicit trafficking to be at least a contained. Uh, and the seizures that Inshik mentioned are an evidence of this, but also it is 
an instrument that allows border management to be an instrument of much more um, efficacy and use for the people of Southeast Asia, for the people that want to do business in Southeast Asia, for the tourists that are allowed and that are able to move faster and with more um, easiness in the region. Um, this is a bit uh, of the rationale behind the, the roadmap and how this desire to protect the infrastructure to improve the connectivity has been intelligently linked with the, um, with the threat that organized crime, of course, poses to all of us. Thank you, thank you. Th thank you for letting us know how uh, this came about with it and the, uh, how the roadmap came about and also the importance of having such a roadmap to address this multifaceted um, challenge. I'm, I'm wondering if you could expand a little bit on how um, it's structured, how the roadmap is structured and what is the main content of this roadmap for the audience? The roadmap is a high level policy. So the roadmap is not a law or it's not a national law, it is not a regional um, declaration. It is a high-level policy, meaning that it sets a series of actions that should be taken seriously by the member states in order to harmonize how border management is uh, conducted. Um, one of the issues that is very relevant for the audience to understand is that before this uh, roadmap was adopted, each member state somehow had its own vision, its own objectives, its own philosophy on how to manage borders. By coming together and understanding that connectivity should be boosted, that infrastructure should be protected, and that illicit trafficking should be contained, they came to the agreement that border management is actually a crucial instrument in order for three, these three elements, these three factors to, to, to move forward. In this respect, the, the roadmap constitutes an umbrella of action so that member states have clarity and have transparency and in the way they should move forward with border governance and management. I always want to differentiate between border governance and border management because border governance is more the policy part. It's the part that relates to how high-level decision makers basically uh, understanding factors of macroeconomy, of trends and patterns like the ones Inshik explained, uh, sit um, and gather in order to, to decide what kind of really overarching instrument is the ideal one to, um, to address the issues, uh, in this case, illicit trafficking and boosting connectivity. And border management is more the actual technical part, the part that is more dealing with how law enforcement, how a police officer, a border control officer in the border actually displays his or her uh, tasks, duties, in order for the overarching um, goals to, to be crystallized or implemented. So while I want always to make this different difference, um, it's important to say that the, the roadmap, this ASEAN border cooperation roadmap, is a, a high-level policy that contains a series of principles, a series of principles that are 
tra translated into nine actions. These nine actions are, of course, very well elaborated, uh, but I would say that could be summarized in three main areas. The first one, the part of uh, infrastructure and uh, technology. So the border management roadmap contains recommendations on how border management uh, agencies, border governance agencies, should be using technology and should be developing infrastructure in order for borders to be properly managed and functional, right? So these are there, there are some actions in, in that direction. Other actions that are uh, for us, uh, as for the international community, of extreme relevance are the ones that um, innovate in a way because they include elements of gender equality, uh, which have not been seen you know, so, so before in other instruments like this one. So actually, the roadmap invites member states to collect disaggregated data, for example, on gender. This is something very unique because usually um, we don't know the scope or the dimension of women female officers in, 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 the, in the border management business. Um, in a way, this is a, a channel to understand better what women's contributions are to border management and governance, and also a way to promote women's work and to invite more women to take active part, active role in the management of borders. And the third, and of course, very relevant for the work you know this city does, is the fact that one of the actions is an invitation to member states, ASEAN member states, to use the Border Liaison Offices Network as a reliable and trustworthy mechanism for them to share intelligence, to share information about the illicit movement of goods, and to cooperate intra-regionally in order to, um, in first place, detain or contain or prevent this illicit trafficking, but also to improve the connectivity and to boost the economy and the, um, yeah, the well-being of Southeast Asian citizens. So in that respect, I believe that um, you know this is uh, recognition in such a high-level policy is, of course, a great honor for us, but also a great responsibility as we are now obliged to provide much more efficient, also technical assistance to the member states we serve. I hope I was able to explain myself. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And, and this was very clear. So we've just uh, had a conversation on how international collaboration is essential in addressing uh, transnational organized crime, such as drug trafficking, um, as highlighted by Felipe, um, through law enforcement co collaboration. So now I'd, I'd like to give the floor to um, Naoki to expand on judicial cooperation in the respect of, um, in this respect, to address trans judicial cooperation. Um, on to address transnational organized crime. So cross-border judicial cooperation includes uh, mutual legal assistance and extradition. And um, I'm wondering if you can highlight the key challenges and the recent achievements uh, made in strengthening uh, South, uh, such cooperation in uh, Southeast Asia and the Pacific. And as well, in the same breath, if you could provide a few examples of uh, successful cases, cases or instances 
um, where a judicial cooperation network uh, such as CJUST uh, has made a significant impact in addressing illicit trafficking. Yeah, Naoki, the floor is yours. Okay, um, thank you very much, Magali. Um, distinguished audiences, um, colleagues, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm very grateful for this opportunity to speak um, at this important forum. And um, yeah, um, thanks to Inchik for setting the stage, um, outlining the magnitude of uh, drug trafficking issues, and also um, Felipe for broadening the scope for um, um, transnational organized crime associated with drug trafficking, and also the important initiatives taken to strengthen border management and border law enforcement cooperation. So um, for the cross-border, for example, law enforcement uh, cooperation to bear fruit with conviction um, against cr uh, cross-border transnational organized crime, uh, judicial cooperation is critically important. So if you're, as a prosecutor or uh, law enforcement, uh, investigating these crimes, you might have to get access to bank records that is located in foreign jurisdiction or if you're dealing with um, trafficking cases, you might um, need to get evidence, uh, for example, um, intercepted communication that has been made in other jurisdictions. So um, in drug trafficking cases, the, um, the other country may have uh, intercepted a quote communication, telephone communication, and you might need to get them as uh, evidence that is admissible in your own jurisdiction. So, um, you know, law enforcement can get these uh, evidence, but in order to to um, have them as an admissible evidence for your trial, you have to go through formal process of uh, mutual legal assistance, for example. And the challenge with MLA, mutual legal assistance, is that um, it is a rather complicated process that takes time and also understanding of um, different legal systems or different uh, legal proceedings and process. So um, this slide um, outlines um, the MLA process. Um, and here um, um, it is an example of uh, MLA process going through diplomatic channels. And that means uh, going through uh, embassies and Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Um, and actually, um, there may be other um, opportunities for authorities to, um, central authorities to directly cooperate if there is a treaty basis. But here I would um, draw some examples on um, the cases that have to go through mutually um, um, diplomatic channels that could take time and um, can make things complicated. So um, if um, you're in country A investigating some orga transnational organized crime cases, drug trafficking cases, um, competent authority, um, that means police or the prosecutors that are in, at the front line investigating the case may need, um, for example, data stored in a um, computer in other jurisdiction or cell phone records, or maybe need witness statements. Um, from a witness located in other countries. So in those cases, they would have to prepare, um, develop a mutual legal assistance request and go through their own central authority that is a gatekeeper um, that provides advice to these con competent authorities. And these MLA requests would, um, in many cases, when you don't have a bilateral treaty basis or multilateral treaty basis, you have to go through um, the Foreign Affairs, Ministry of Foreign Affairs in your own country, send the request to the embassy in the other jurisdiction. And from there, um, the request goes to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. 
and go to their central authority. So it takes already quite some time through this process, and it gets even more complicated if it involves um, different uh, legal system or legal proceedings. So in some countries, for example, if you need a bank record, um, you don't need a warrant, search warrant to get a bank record. So if um, country A was country where they don't need any search warrant to get a bank record, um, they might want to get um, the same support from country B. However, the country B may require search warrant or may need a subpoena from the court to get bank records. And in those cases, um, challenges occur if the um, country A didn't have knowledge or understanding of the different system in other countries. Um, mobile phone uh, communication, that's also another um, challenge in some cases, um, especially when you want to get a content of such uh, communication. Um, there may be different standards, uh, court orders, um, standards to get court orders. So um, those are the kind of complex issue that is involved in the, the process. And that's why um, uh, it becomes a quite a challenge. So um, to highlight the challenge, I highlighted um, the process going through the uh, foreign diplomatic channel. But um, the key players here would be the central authorities that I mentioned as a gatekeeper or the um, facilitator of these mutual legal assistance processes. And it is essential to support um, these uh, central authorities so that they can um, closely work together based on trust and also mutual understanding of different legal systems and requirements. So um, in order to um, have uh, effective day-to-day -day operation, um, it is essential to have a network where the central authority can pick up a phone and have a call with uh, the, their contact points in the network um, to, to seek um, about their process, the other country's processes or legal requirements. And also, um, apart from such network, um, having a platform for um, in-depth knowledge or expertise sharing that can strengthen the legal understanding of legal systems or legal procedure, that would also be quite useful. So that's where the recent developments um, that I would like to highlight here uh, comes into play. That is CJUST and CRIM-AP, supported by UNODC. So uh, CJUST is an operational network of central authorities created in 2020, and um, that comprised of uh, 17 member countries so far. Um, it, when it started in 2020, it was um, eight member countries of Southeast Asia uh, participating. And in three years, um, we have doubled um, its membership to 17. All ASEAN countries now join the network, and we also have um, Australia, uh, Maldives, that um, is beyond Southeast Asia, uh, Republic of Korea, Romania, Indonesia, and United States, Mongolia joined recently. So this is a very rapidly expanding uh, network. And I think it already shows um, how useful member states find having such network for cooperation. CRIM-AP, its name, formal name is Criminal Justice Forum for Asia and the Pacific. Um, this is a knowledge sharing and expertise sharing platform for criminal justice experts. And a working group on mutual legal assistance was established in 2021 for the central authority practitioners. Participants um, somewhat overlap, but slightly different. Um, so ASEAN countries participate in this platform. We also have uh, Canada, China, Japan, 
um, Papua New Guinea and New Zealand uh, participating in this criminal justice forum for Asian Pacific Net platform, um, which uh, meet annually to have uh, in-depth discussion on practical and substantive matters related to mutual legal assistance. So um, CJUST is a operational network that supports the day-to-day -day operation, and CRIMAP is the knowledge sharing, expertise sharing platform that serves, um, um, in Japanese, we call it uh, the two wheels of a cart. So one cart here, one cart here that drives the cart straight. So um, yes, with request to um, addressing the request from uh, Magali, um, cases facilitated by CJUS. Um, as of last year, um, over 50 cases have been facilitated through CJUS and CJUS um, facilitates the, the communication collaboration of the central authorities by supporting direct communication between the central authorities so that they can con contact directly to seek for available measures or necessary uh, legal procedural requirement, or maybe um, give them a, give um, a call to get some updates on ongoing or pending re requests. So, and um, the network not only serves within the network, but it also um, puts the central authorities in touch with uh, central authorities outside the network. As you see here in 20% of the cases are among the CJUS members, but actually the 80% of the cases facilitated goes outside the uh, just network. So um, if you need to get in touch with the uh, central authorities of other countries, um, that's where um, the CJUS secretariat would come in to support um, facilitating those cases. Um, the point is that um, due to the confidentiality issues, once we put the central authorities in touch, the secretariat would um, stay away from the substantive um, investigation or substantive um, information of the cases. Um, so uh, we don't have the specificity or detailed cases of uh, what kind of each cases. However, um, we've seen uh, many cases related to drug trafficking or transnational organized crime issues being supported, facilitated through the CJS network, which requires identifying the suspects or uh, going after bank records. Or even in some cases, um, CJS is basically a MLA central authority network but can also support uh, urgent cases of extradition. But because some countries, central authorities serve as a central authority for MLA and the extradition. So that's where um, they can also work on identifying competent authorities related to extradition cases. So um, for the time, and so um, as a secretariat of CJUST, uh, we are working on um, further effectively collecting um, statistics and information from the member states and discussing with the member states to what extent we can um, share such information outside the network. So um, those are some of the developed uh, key. I just wanted to highlight some of the key challenges and the recent developments related to uh, judicial cooperation. And I'll give the floor back to you, Magali. Thank you. Thank you, Naoki. So be it both on the ASEAN Border Co Cooperation Roadmap or on CJUS and CRIMAP, we've seen the importance of having um, an institutional framework uh, to address uh, cross-border collaboration um, uh, or to address illicit uh, trafficking through cross-border collaboration from law enforcement and from uh, criminal justice practitioners alike. So now I'd like to expand on the role UNODC has and the impact UNODC has um, in both of this. So 
Um, just a side note to our audience, if you have any questions, um, feel free. I think there's a Q&A section. Feel free to ask in the Q&A. And if we have time at the end, we'll address these. Um, Felipe, I was wondering, so you mentioned the ASEAN border management roadmap in the first set of questions. Um, within this framework, how does UNODC support cross-border law enforcement cooperation um, to address illicit trafficking? And what are some of the most notable successes um, in this area that UNODC has undertaken? Can you please expand on this? Mm, sure. Thank you, Magali. It's so hot here in Bangkok that I need like water. <laughs> okay. So um, I commented uh, about the roadmap, correct? This overarching policy, this overarching instrument that um, allows member states uh, of Southeast Asia um, to have clarity and uh, transparency with respect to what to achieve and where to go uh, with respect to um, border management, border governance, and um, I would like to reiterate the fact that this roadmap um, has uh, not only the purpose of uh, managing, helping member states managing borders, but also to, of course, prepare member states to better contain illicit trafficking, the illicit movement of goods. And I would like to reiterate also that while drug trafficking is, of course, a, a, a big concern for the region, there are other associated serious criminal offenses that are connected to drug trafficking and that um, have serious impact on Southeast Asian citizens, uh, uh, their health and well-being. Said so, I would like to mention that UNODC has been working very closely with um, ASEAN member states um, in two pillars. And that is why I believe it's very relevant uh, for the audience to understand this difference between border management and border governance. Border governance, as I said, is the, the way and the result of high-level discussions uh, of decision makers and that are translated into a policy, into a, a, a vision, a general vision of how the region should should uh, should address a particular topic, right? And border management is, of course, the more technical, the more the more practical aspects of border governance. How really border governance is implemented and is taking place in a border in a border? Yes, in a border uh, post. So I believe that what we have been doing in UNODC is addressing these two parts, right? These two pillars, border governance and border management. And in the area of border governance, I believe it's very relevant for the audience to, to know that um, for the first time, UNODC um, convoked a number of ASEAN member states to Pattaya in Thailand uh, with the intention to understand what is the status of implementation of this roadmap, to discuss what are the challenges, to discuss what are the, you know, the, the, the difficulties they have uh, with respect to managing borders and what is that they would like to see in the future in the area of border management. So we hosted, together with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Thailand, a very successful dialogue in Pattaya in February 2023. Basically, um, this dialogue was a great opportunity for member states to, um, to see what is that they are doing, what is the, the main challenge they face, 
And what are the main topics or the main um, goals they would have in the future with respect to managing borders? In that respect, covering border management, we were able to produce a number of recommendations with respect to the future of this roadmap. And we are very happy and very proud to tell the audience that, yes, these recommendations cover a number of very innovative um, aspects of border management that have not been taken into account before. Usually, border management has been only addressed from the law enforcement point of view, meaning working with police entities in order to contain drugs in the in, in selected border points. But... Thanks to this uh, regional dialogue that I'm sharing you about, and thanks to these recommendations that we were able to, to contribute and that member states adopted, uh, now the region has a more, I would say, comprehensive, a more holistic uh, vision with respect to, to border management, as it includes issues relating to the well-being of border communities, for example, something that was not uh, you know, included before in any instrument. We are also paying a lot of attention to data collection, to the cross uh, sharing of information, which is one of the main aspects to be developed. And I believe it's, it's very interesting that also member states are more and more convinced of the importance of women in the border management business. So, Yes, these are for me um, the most important successes uh, in the areas of border management and border governance. And of course, one that is of major significance is the fact that through um, the BLO network, this border liaison offices network, we were able to gather countries uh, in the region specifically Cambodia and Vietnam, to run an actual operation, a practical exercise where their border officers got together, reached an agreement of a strategy, and they were able for four months conduct a series of activities in order to catch and seize uh, illicit goods in the Vietnamese-Cambodian uh, border. This exercise, which were, was called an operation, uh, was actually um, the main vehicle for the seizure of a significant amount of drugs, including heroin. So this, I would say, is a very concrete result, is a very successful example of a border governance policy that is translated into a border management action that has very concrete results for the well-being and for the population. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Felipe. Um, I see we have a question in the chat. I will uh, address it right after uh, giving the floor to Naoki. Um, Naoki, I was wondering if you could provide more details as well, talking about uh, UNODC's mm -hmm. impact. Um, if you could provide more details on UNODC's role, I know you touched upon this a little bit um, in our first set of questions as the Secretariat of CJAS and CRIM-AP, um, and the support provided by UNODC uh, to strengthen legal frameworks and the capacity of Southeast Asian um, countries to enhance cooperation. Sure. Um, thank you, Megali, for addressing those questions. Um, yes, so um, CRIM-AP, um, just um, they are both um, knowledge sharing platform and also an operational network. And UNODC serves as secretariat of uh, both these initiatives. Um, CJUST um, is an operational network that puts the, the 
central authorities in touch and UNODC is the, our team in Bangkok is the go-to place for the central authorities of the network when you need to get in touch with uh, other authorities beyond the network. So um, there's been cases where um, Southeast Asian countries needed access to central authority of uh, Guernsey. Um, that's a channel state um, between the uh, UK and the continental Europe um, or um, needed access to central authorities of state Hill. So that's where UNODC, our team, comes into play to put in touch these central authorities. Um, so we maintain good collaboration contact with other networks. Um, similar to CJS, there are other networks in Central Asia and um, in Africa. Um, so, so those are maintained by UNODC, so that's quite easy to, to maintain connection with other networks. Also, uh, European Judicial Network Secretariat, we work also very closely with them so that um, we can um, support our network members to get in touch with the, the members. And also the other way around, when European countries wanted to get um, urgent um, contact with the member states of Southeast Asia, that's where we um, provide support for uh, cooperation. Um, actually, uh, both um, CJUST and CRIM-AP um, organizes annual meetings and regular meetings for the central authorities. And just we have an uh, annual plenary meeting that um, brings the members together so that they can discuss about the uh, organizational matter of the network. Um, CJUST is a network of, owned by the members. It's the members network and UNODC is to support. So um, the sense of ownership of the participating members is also a very important factor for CJUST to be such a successful network. And uh, we are very grateful to be in the position to support um, the work of the CJUST uh, contact point. And related to CRIM-AP, which is a knowledge sharing uh, platform, uh, um, we have more dedicated time to um, discuss in depth about uh, substantive and technical aspects. Uh, for example, this year we have touched upon handling of electronic evidence and also how um, technologies like video conferencing has been used in the mutual legal assistance context in interviewing witnesses or um, suspects or defendants. So um, we've had some dedicated discussions to strengthen the knowledge base and um, that, uh, and also developed a report that could be shared with the participating countries so that um, their knowledge base can be enhanced and strengthened. At the same time, um, we have um, provided, um, and through these exercises, um, it has been quite evident that um, there's been some gaps between the capacity of the central authorities. Some countries, central authorities have a large team with a breadth of expertise, whereas others may have uh, recently established the central authorities and there may have some challenges um, in knowledge and capacity um, in that regard. So uh, UNODC, our team has been um, working closely with the members um, that um, request our support and we've been providing um, trainings and uh, workshops for the central authorities and also develop tools or uh, forms um, for uh, MLA purposes. Our most recent uh, activities that uh, we have conducted is in um, Lao PDR and Cambodia of the training of trainers to um, develop a pool of trainers that can um, support the central authorities and also the frontline practitioners um, to inform them of the availability of mutual legal assistance and what is necessary 
to develop these um, MLA requests. Um, I've touched upon um, just a little bit about um, handling electronic evidence that is also nowadays um, critically important with the uh, abuse of technology by the organized crime groups, including the drug traffickers. So um, we have um, developed a handbook for ha um, handling electronic evidence and also what we call electronic evidence fish. That is an online platform uh, where you can see um, different procedural requirements or different procedural measures that are available in handling electronic evidence of the members um, of Southeast Asia. Um, we've also provided trainings for uh, prosecutors um, on developing um, the capacity dealing with electronic evidence and technologies, um, and also provided some um, translation support uh, because the language is also one of the challenges in addressing MLA. Um, I won't go into other um, issues um, that are less relevant to, to this topic, but um, we've have been working extensively um, with the member states in the region to develop the capacity. And um, in relation to um, drug trafficking or uh, transnational organized crime, uh, perhaps next opportunity or areas that we would be willing to support would be use of uh, um, special investigating techniques, um, how um, that can be further utilized to, by the uh, law enforcement and the judicial officers to address the transnational organized crime and the drug traffic. So um, that's pretty much it from me. And um, I think we have some more time uh, for Felipe to address the question in the chat. Thank you. Th thank you, Naoki. And I think I, I, I see we have two minutes left. Um, and there is one question indeed uh, in the in, in the group chat or in the Q&A section. Uh, Felipe, this question is for you. I'm wondering if you have um, access or like a reference tool uh, for the question, which is asking on drivers of engagement of communities in illicit uh, activities. So the role of border communities in addressing um, transnational organized crime in one minute. Do you have something to offer? Well, basically to share with the audience that you know DC was able to carry out uh, for the first time in Southeast Asia a survey uh, using uh, local volunteers in order to ask um, normal people in more than 50 borders in Southeast Asia about what is the impact of illicit trafficking in their daily lives. The results of this survey uh, were absolutely um, fascinating because we were able to understand what is really that uh, worries the people in the region. And that has been a crucial factor for UNODC to better plan, design our technical assistance uh, programs. Um, border communities play a crucial role in um, helping law enforcement detect the presence of possible um, movement of illicit goods. So I believe that the future of border management, besides law enforcement, is really making sure that communities, that people living at borders, play a more active role in the border management business. That is, a, in a snapshot, my, my contribution. Thank you so much, Magali. Thank you. And thank you to uh, Naoki as well for uh, paving the way for, or suggesting the way for a way forward. Um, I think this concludes today's panel session, given that the time has come and this is a 24-hour conference, meaning that there's a lot of um, conferences or panel discussions for you to follow um, afterwards. Thank you very much to Felipe, to Naoki and to Inchik for participating in today's panel. Um, thank you to the OC24 
um, organizing committee for facilitating this. Um, the everything on well, UNODC's um, resources are available online for you. Uh, UNODC uh, underscore SEAP on Twitter. Um, and uh, you can also see the uh, on or the website UNODC Regional Office for Southeast Asia and the Pacific for any further information. That concludes today's panel. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure uh, for me to moderate and that's it for today. Thank you. Bye everyone.